We want to take our Bibles and uh, turn to Isaiah 61. Uh, my Bible text this morning, we're looking at verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, very familiar passage that's often referenced at this time of year. So let's look at that together. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we, we're grateful. We're grateful that you speak and that we have your word bound up before us in our Bibles. Lord, these words are life to us. And we know we need them. They are food, daily bread. We know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And Father, in this time of proclaiming this, uh, I'm asking for a special measure of your grace uh, to communicate uh, what is needful and to leave aside what is not. Father, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself may be glorified. So give us, give us that attentiveness of mind and a readiness of heart to hear from you, and we'll trust that uh, the Lord Jesus himself will be our focus in this, and we ask it in his name, amen. <clears throat> uh, if you have followed the news, and, and this, these things cannot escape us, uh, you'd be certainly aware of the heinous and murderous attacks of, by Hamas uh, against unsuspecting civilians in Israel and the war that's ensued after that. Well, in following that, or as part of that, uh, that terrorist attack, they took hostages. And some of them have been returned, but still others remain with the terrorists. Hostages, prisoners of war, and even, I would suggest, even victims of systemic physical and mental abuse, they know, those who've experienced that know the experience of captivity and how that can break the spirit to the point that some may simply give up hope. I want to give you a little bit of an outline of the prophet Isaiah just so that we know where we're landing here. Uh, chapters 1 through 12 is God's judgment against Judah for her, but embedded in that is a hope of redemption. Chapters 13 through 27 is God's judgment against the nations, but also therein a message of hope. Chapters 28 through 35, we see a bunch of woes against the nations, but also hope for Zion. 36 through 39, uh, we're told how Judah will be spared from Assyria, but the Babylonian captivity is thus, in that section, predicted, the exile to Babylon. Moving to chapter 40 through 66, really highlighting God's salvation. Salvation initially from exile in Babylon, and the one through whom that salvation would ultimately come in an ultimate salvation sense, the anointed servant, Messiah 
and in the end, a judgment for the wicked, but also future glory for Israel. In this section where, that we just read, having already predicted the captivity in Babylon, the, that was through the prophet, <clears throat> the Lord assured his people that their captivity would come to an end. So back in chapter 44 and 45, this is 200 years before it happened, the Lord even identified the Persian king by name, Cyrus, who would facilitate that, that physical deliverance and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, while Isaiah is writing this, the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon is yet future. The prophet, however, speaking by the Spirit of the Lord, brought a message of hope not only for the future captives in Babylon, but beyond to spiritual captives suffering under the weight of hopelessness. So this time of year, we're, we're, we're celebrating the incarnation of the Son of God. And I want us to be reminded one of the reasons why Jesus came to earth, to free his people from bondage, to bring hope where there's been hopelessness, to bring a, a vision for the future where all desire to continue has been given up. Jesus came to free his people from bondage. In fact, his name, Yeshua, Jesus in the Greek, means God's salvation. In Nazareth, after Jesus read this very passage from Isaiah, he declared, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as we encounter this scripture this morning, it has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at this passage a little more closely, we want to start out with the, the idea of good news. Good news, but for whom? Who is the good news for? Now if you watch uh, the evening news, if you look at the headlines on your internet news reader, you know this, most of it's bad, most of it is bad news. Interest rates are up, job growth slowing, robberies, murders, corruption, and even small things like coffee and soda, butter, steak. They cost cancer now, bad news, right? It's just bad news, nothing good. Now, I, yeah, there's occasionally some good news story. Cure is found, dog returns to family after a year. But, but deep down, deep down, those, those little good news tidbits don't ha help if, if you long for relief Relief that is an, a, a, a spiritual plague in your soul, a sense of hopelessness and a longing for something more certain. And if deep down you long for that, and if someone, anyone should come who has real authority and actual power and said, I'll take care of it, I'll relieve your suffering, that would be good news indeed. Well, that word of good news came from one who spoke with authority. Now, in, in the passage that we looked in Isaiah 61, he was anointed. He was set apart by God. He was chosen by God. He was moved by the Spirit. And we're told that that good news is for the poor. That good news is for the brokenhearted, the captive, the bound. All of that is in verse 1. 
That good news is for the mournful, verse 2. That good news is for the faint of spirit, verse 3. Now to be sure, that certainly would describe those Israelite captives in Babylon when it was to happen. It would be obvious to them. In fact, we can read in the Psalms that they would have lamented what they lost. Psalm 137, one, if you're familiar with this, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. The physical captivity of those Israelites after Jerusalem was destroyed and they were carried off by the Chaldeans into Babylon, they wept. But when Jesus taking this very passage of scripture, declared that the good news was fulfilled in him, most of the people in his hometown rejected that. They rejected him. He came with authority as a son of God, but they said no. And in fact, they were so incensed, if you look at this in, in, in uh, Luke, uh, it's actually Luke chapter four. You find this in Luke chapter four, 18, 19. And following that, you see what happened. They were so incensed by Jesus declaring that it was fulfilled in him that they drove him to a cliff to try to push him off. But he just turned around and walked through. It wasn't his time. They rejected that message. They didn't understand the spiritual significance of what Jesus was saying. And here's the thing. It's only good news if you know you're poor. This was only good news for those who understood their own poverty. Jesus, in fact, said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven comes to those who know that they have this spiritual poverty. His countrymen in Nazareth didn't sense that in themselves. The opposite is true, of course. If you're not poor in spirit, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is the recognition that before God you have absolutely nothing. It's the recognition before God that your sin would condemn you. And to use the words of the prophet, you're brokenhearted and mournful because of it. You see the holy standard of God and you look at your own life and you see how very far, infinitely far short of his glory you fall. And you see that in yourself there is no good thing, as the Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter three, that you're among those who, he says, no one is righteous, not even one. The poison of snakes is on our lips. We don't do anything right. Born spirit understands that. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There's a kind of blindness that goes with that, right? So if you are faint of spirit, you know you have no power over that sin in your own life. You know you have no means within you to do anything at all about it. You know in your own life that you, you make some small effort and don't do that one thing. But then there's a myriad of other things that you give into. You feel powerless. 
You know, when Jesus proclaimed that this was fulfilled in the hearing of those in the synagogue in Nazareth, I think so many people in our world today think like they did when they rejected Jesus. They think they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. And and they assume, I, I suppose, that being an upright citizen and contributing to society through career and service or or doing the occasional charitable thing or you know saving the planet and advocating for victims, reforming society, things like that. So many people think that these things make them morally worthy of God's eternal favor, but nothing could be further from the truth. See, the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that is for the poor in spirit. It's for one that know they are captive to sin and its consequences, and they understand that even their very best efforts fall short. They are aware that they are unclean and that even their righteous deeds are no better than a polluted garment. See, the mournful recognize their sin. They know they need something that is entirely outside of themselves. They know they need Jesus. And Jesus can proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, not because he waved his hand and decided just to ignore sin. No, he couldn't do that and satisfy God's justice in any way. He just couldn't say, don't worry about it. No, the good news that he came to proclaim, the good news that he embodied himself, the word who became flesh is that he came to bear the full consequence of our sin before God. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin of his own. So this good news, this gospel, it is for the poor, the mournful, the humble, the repentant, because they know they need it and want it. That's who it's for. Well, secondly, I want to look at Reset and restoration. Who's the good news for? The repentant, the broken, the mournful. So what happens as a result of the good news? That's reset and restoration. Now, a few months ago, I found out my identity was stolen. I discovered it when somebody bought a laptop. Uh, and and I, I figured out how they did it. It was revealed to me that somebody used my social security number. In addition, they stole a great deal of money out of one of my savings accounts. Now, it took a few months, everything's resolved, but my initial reaction to that was to think, oh, somebody got into my computer, one of my computers. So I just wiped everything out. I did a reset. Bring it back to factory original, thinking that maybe there's some malware on there, I don't know. Now, perhaps you've done this, you've you use computers for a while or you've had somebody do this, the thing kind of gets slow and it bogs down and you just do a factory reset. You, you put it all back. And, and here's the, what happens. So a system that might otherwise run well gets kind of mixed up and, and some software causes it to start running poorly. See, we reset when an otherwise good system gets out of balance or, or corrupted in some way. We get that. And the fact that resets are necessary 
assumes here that human interactions with otherwise good systems can mess them up, right? If you've tinkered with your computer, you're like, well, I gotta reset it, right? Now, I, I say that, it's just an illustration, but I say that because built into the law that the Lord gave to the Israelites was a sort of a national reset. The law presumed that the Israelites would gum up the works and that things would get out of balance. That reset was called the Jubilee. And that's what's view in view here in the phrase, the year of the Lord's favor. It's the Jubilee. You can read about that in Leviticus 25. Let me explain what that is if you're unfamiliar. <clears throat> you see, the, the rhythm of weeks and years was all built around sevens, of course, based on the creation story, right? God created in, in six days and rested on the seventh. That's how life was organized, and we still hold to that. Well, what you do is you work against uh, six, rest on the seventh, but it also applied to years. You sow and harvest for six years, and then the seventh, you let the land rest. Don't plant. Then after seven cycles of seven years, it was declared to be a jubilee year. And what would happen in the jubilee year is all of the tribal lands that had been assigned to the various families that were sold for whatever reason, and it was often economic hardship. A family would sell their plot of land and, and maybe it's to another, somebody from another tribe. Those were then returned to the ancestral family. You're done with that land, it goes back to the ancestral family. In that day, uh, jubilee year, debts were forgiven. And Israelites who fell on economic hard times who had sold themselves, voluntarily sold themselves into slavery so because they couldn't pay their debts, it was over. They were released. The Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. That year of Jubilee was a reminder to the Israelites of his favor. It was a reminder of God's grace and the means to put everything back to the way it was before people messed it up. Now, there's no biblical evidence that the Jubilee was ever observed by the Israelites because the Sabbath year had never been observed either. And if we look in our Bibles, according to 2 Chronicles 36, 2 through 21, their very failure to observe the Sabbath year was one of the reasons given for the Babylonian captivity. Why did the Chaldeans come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple and, and carry them off. Second Chronicles. The Lord took them into exile in Babylon to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land, listen, had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. So they were captive because they failed to keep the Sabbath year. And because the Sabbath year had failed, the Jubilee was never celebrated. But the Lord imposed it upon them. So to the captives in Babylon, the poor, the brokenhearted, the mourning, the fainthearted, the good news for them was the announcement of Jubilee. Verse two, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But understand, Fulfilled in Jesus, 
that something far, far greater. You know the story? We we recount it a lot here. Eden was lost to Adam and Eve when they sinned. They were banished. And ever since that time, man has longed to get back to the garden. That land of Canaan, that was a promise. In a sense, a kind of an Eden. It was promised to the offspring of Abraham and it was a prefiguring type of a better country. An eternal kingdom where God would again walk with man in the garden like he did with Adam in the cool of the day. When the Son of God became man, the incarnation of the Son of God, he came to fulfill Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. He did that first spiritually. Spiritually, by becoming sin for us at his cross. He did that in order to reset us to a place of innocence, to take all of the garbage that we had brought in and not count that against us anymore, to reset us to a place of innocence. But you gotta understand something here. The Lord's favor, this spiritual jubilee is more than mere innocence. Now, in the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke doesn't record that Jesus read beyond the first part of verse two of Isaiah 61. He ends at the year of the Lord's favor. But I do not doubt that he had that in view as well. See, what the the Lord's favor does, the, the, the jubilee does, it takes away spiritual poverty. It takes away mourning, captivity, and bondage, and faint heartedness. And it replaces it with with joy in Christ himself. Verses two and three, he restores what we traded away for our rebellion. And you can see that, verses two and three, he gives comfort in the place of mourning. He gives a, a beautiful headdress in the place of sackcloth and ashes. An expression of mourning was to put dust on your head and, and wear, wear uncomfortable garments. But he says he gives a beautiful headdress He gives the anointing oil for gladness in the place of tears. And what happens is there is praise for the Lord in the place of lament. Praise instead of lament. And he does this for those he rescues in order that they may be called oaks of righteousness. We see that in the text. Oaks of righteousness. So it's not mere innocence. It's not a a neutral place before God, but a declaration that they, the people of God, those who experience the day of the Lord's favor may be declared to be oaks of righteousness. That oak tree, right? Deeply rooted, majestic, majestic, I should say, flourishing, and like that oak tree, a pillar of righteousness. See, that's not mere innocence. That's something far more glorious. Now I read the first half of 2 Corinthians 5.21, but here's the second half. This is what is being described here. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Become the righteousness of God. To become the righteousness of God is to, to have in you all the eternal merit of Jesus, the Son of God. 
Now it's unearned. Don't get me wrong. We're not earning this. But this is the gift given to be declared before God as holy and righteous in his sight the same way that the Son of God is in actuality. The first part of, of verse 2, which Luke quotes, this is back in, over in Luke 4.19, says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But in Isaiah, there's, there's a second half of that. And, this is what, what Jesus isn't recorded as reading, this is what's in Isaiah, and the day of vengeance of our God. So why is that part of the Jubilee? When you think about it, declaring the day of the Lord's favor, why and the vengeance and the day of vengeance of our God, why is that included? Why is that part of the Jubilee? Well, certainly God will deal with the enemies of his people. You can see that back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 13 through 25, right? That's all there. We see how he judges the nations and, and all of the woes that befall them. God is absolutely just and to be true to himself, he must judge sin and rebellion. The year of the Lord's favor does not simply sweep away the consequences of sin. The day of vengeance will certainly fall upon the unrepentant. But for the poor in spirit, for the mournful, for the ones that humble themselves before God, and it's my prayer that you are among them today, that day of vengeance that went with the proclamation of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance, that was absorbed by Christ at his cross. God's wrath, the full fury of his righteous, justified anger for your sin and mine poured out on the Son at the cross. That's the day of vengeance that does not befall us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we are not destined for wrath. We have a glorious place of acceptance before God in Christ. So if, in, if you're in Christ this morning, then, then you have, you have, it is a, a given, you have been declared righteous in God's sight because Christ already redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us, Galatians 3.13. And so it's necessary that you understand what what. What, what makes it possible for you to enjoy the year of the Lord's favor if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, if you know that he walked the earth in absolute moral perfection, if you are trusting that his death on the cross was for you in your place, and if you believe that he rose from the grave, if that is you this morning, then you are right now living in the Lord's favor. Right now, you are free from the eternal consequences of sin. Jesus was judged instead of you. And you're also, with that, you are also free from the power of sin to control you. And that has everyday implications. And this is glorious. When I was a young believer, I thought, I was all twisted in my thinking. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. But somehow I thought it was entirely up to me to make myself righteous so that I could be worthy of the salvation given to me. Twisted. No, what, what Christ accomplished at the cross is he broke the power of sin that has everyday implications. 
Sin no longer has mastery over you. While, it, while, while, while captive in Babylon, physically, the Israelites were under the control of a master that exploited them. And, and Babylon, as a nation, they had no concern for the Lord and his promises. For them, for them, as thinking about this in captivity, freedom would be a return to their land and, and a return to living under and delighting in the law of God. Now Babylon, a real nation, but in the, in the Bible, Babylon, like Babel before it, that represents all that exalts itself above the Lord. And so to buy in to Babylon is to give yourself over to idolatry, to give yourself over to self-exaltation, to give yourself over to self-indulgence. And it is a path that leads to eternal destruction. Christ came to the earth as a little baby, humble. He grew and ultimately proclaimed himself in himself the good news of liberty from the death grip of Babylon. Now again, when Jesus proclaimed that message to his hometown, they, they rejected him. First, they didn't want to believe that he was the Messiah, but they kept, they kept rejecting, rejecting him because they thought, they thought what they needed most was, was deliverance from Roman tyranny. Yeah, it's true. Rome was a godless, idolatrous empire. That's true. But freedom from Rome, that would not be the freedom that they needed the most. And sadly, many in our day who delight in the Christmas story, like the many religious Jews in Jesus' day, they don't really want what Jesus is offering. Yeah, they like the sentimentality of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But they reject him when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Metaphorically, Babylon is all around us. But the greatest threat is the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of independence and idolatry that is in each of us. That is the greatest threat. And the grand irony is this. Independence from God is the opposite of liberty. Jesus came to free us from a tyranny of our own making. But if you trust Christ, if you truly trust him, you will be made free. And that, that freedom, that liberty can never be taken away. Jesus himself said this. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Indeed, truly, without question, unassailably free. Why? Because the good news, the gospel, the message about Jesus and who he is and what he has accomplished, that message is the power, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what that means is that because it's the power of God, it's not passive. It's not information that I must figure out what to do with. It's, it's news that comes to me and acts on me and you. Christ has freed you. So we are called to live as those who have been made free. There is power for that. And it's a daily choice. 
So brothers and sisters in Christ, embrace your freedom. But because you know you're free, live as a free person. And so what does that look like? And here's where we can apply this this morning. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 gives us a kind of a description. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That sounds circular, doesn't it? For freedom, Christ has set us free. He's given us freedom so that we could be free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do not submit again. You've been made free in Christ. Don't submit again. Don't go back to Babylon. Stand firm in your faith. Stop messing with Babylon. What's Babylon? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, it's these things. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Not an exhaustive list. No, don't mess with Babylon. You've been made free. Live as a free person. You've been given power to live as a free person. You were called to freedom. That's what Jesus has given us. So don't, don't, brothers and sisters in Christ, use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but by love, serve one another. And we do that, we do that by giving evidence of the Spirit of God living in our lives. And it looks like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the hallmarks of people who are free in Christ. These outworkings are the result of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us as a result of looking to Christ and Him crucified, knowing that in Him our sins are forgiven. It's a full package You've been made free. You have the power to live as a free person. And this good news, just to restate what we've visited, the good news is for the poor, it's for the brokenhearted, it's for the captive, it's for the bound, it's for the mournful, it's for the faint of spirit, or as we sang earlier, for the ones that know that they are unfaithful, weak, and unstable. And if you understand that about yourself, and if you have understood that about yourself, Christ has come for you and he has given you liberty in him. And that's what Christ came to accomplish. That's why God became man, among many other glorious blessings. Well, let's pray as we prepare to spend time around the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we, we're so very grateful. You freed us from the prison of our own making, from the bondage of our own self-destructive attitudes and habits father in your son you've declared us righteous even though there's nothing in us that makes us worthy but father that just all the more highlights the immensity of your grace and the goodness of the son of god to bear in his own body the full measure of your wrath for our sin so father cause us to be people who live as free people who don't mess with babylon who long for 
your character to be formed in us. And keep us faithful to the day when Christ will return. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.